This is episode 257 of Alohomora for October 27th, 2018. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Alohomora. I am Katie Carty Hiley. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Beth Warsaw. And I have the lovely pleasure of introducing our guest, Parker. And Parker is a friend of mine, and I'm super excited to have them on today. Parker, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm so excited to be here and soak in all of your Harry Potter knowledge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I'm Parker Peavy House, and and I'm a good friend of Beth's, and we are on a trivia team together. Um, she's an honorary member now because she lives far away, but I pretend she whispers the answers into my ear Aww. when I'm debating. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so I'm a, I'm a Ravenclaw, and I love doing all kinds of puzzles and things. I actually made a Harry Potter logic puzzle for Aloha More listeners, and it's on my website, parkerpeavyhouse.com. Um, there's a little badge. You can ah! see it. So if you want to do a Harry Potter logic puzzle challenge, you're working at Honeydukes and you're trying to figure out the right candy to give to each person based on the hints. And um, yeah, I just it's I really cute. like making puzzles. So, That's so And awesome. that is no shock considering you just wrote a book entirely about a puzzle. <laughs> yes. My new book is The Echo Room and it's about two teens who wake up to find themselves trapped in a mysterious metal room. They're trying to escape but they also realize they can't trust each other uh, for various reasons. For one thing, one of them has blood on his clothes and they don't know how it got there. Um, and so oh they have to work together to get out and there's, you know, buttons and levers and things. They're trying to figure out why they're there and how it works. And uh, every time they try to get out and fail, they loop back in time and start over with very little memory of what happened before. So it's a little bit like an escape room. It's very puzzly. It's cool. Yeah, I just finished reading it last night, and it was such a fun read. Uh, I it just like flew through the book. So, listeners, go check out the Echo Room. Thank you. (laughs) And also, Parker, how did you get into Harry Potter? I'm always curious about that. Um, I I was a teenager. I was working at a restaurant, and I noticed that every kid who came into the restaurant had the same book with them. And it started to kind of freak me out. I was like, why is every kid <laughs> reading the same book? I went to the bookstore and checked it out. The and Cult I, of Potter. Yeah. I was like, this is the exact kind of book that I like. Um, so my sister got it for me for Christmas. And I ended up reading all three books around at that time. I read all three. And then I was just completely hooked. Couldn't wait for each next installment. It was really fun to theorize what was going to happen in the next one. And I had a little Harry Potter club and we would try to figure out what was going to happen. It was, it was very exciting. Nice. That's so <laughs> now awesome. You're on a Harry Potter podcast. Woo! I never would have dreamed. I was one of those kids that uh, brought Harry Potter into a restaurant. I was in a restaurant when I read that Dumbledore died. And I was just like waiting for my food to arrive. And usually it was against the rules in my family for you to be like, you know, doing other things at family dinner. But Harry Potter, you know, was an exception. And so the rest (laughs) of my family is chatting, waiting for our food to arrive. And suddenly I just like start crying at the dinner table (laughs) in the middle of a restaurant. (laughs) My family is like, what? You're like salty tears in my food. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Wait, and Parker, Parker, what's your Hogwarts house? Oh, Ravenclaw. She said Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw, That's right. 
That's yeah, right. my wand She's is in Laurel, my house, which is a really Ooh. interesting. I kind of looked it up a little bit, and it said that if I get bored, it will kill me or something. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> don't ever be bored with this wand. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, it's pressure. <laughs> It'll just turn on you. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Keep keep it busy. I do hate being bored, as does everyone. I was sure, gonna say but... it does hey. sound like a really good fit for you. So oh, thank you. <laughs> A good fit, but a dangerous one. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Well, for this episode, we are going to be doing another chapter revisit. We are going back to Deathly Hallows, Chapter 18, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. Uh, we thought this would be the perfect time to do this since Fantastic Beasts Crimes of Grindelwald is coming out in less than a month from when this is actually published. <laughs> And we thought it would be a good idea to revisit a Dumbledore and Grindelwald-centric chapter before we get to know the characters even better in the upcoming film. So, but as always, do read or reread the chapter before listening to get maximum enjoyment out of this episode. And if you really want to go the extra mile, re-listen to our original episode on this chapter, which is episode number 168 from December 2015. I was on that episode. You were. You had some very good points. Did I? I haven't listened to it in a while, and I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm sure I'll repeat myself. Awesome. Can't wait. Call me out, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and I would like to give a huge shout out to David Butt on Patreon for sponsoring this episode. And this is the second time that David has sponsored us. So thank you so much, David. We Yay. appreciate you. David's been a long-time listener. His his username is yes. wbjones999. Yeah, and he's all over the main site and our Facebook group as well. Yeah. Yes, we love David. So uh, if you'd like to become a sponsor just like David, you can sponsor us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. And if you'd like to sponsor us for a little bit more, you can get other exciting perks like access to the Facebook group, Dumbledore's Office, that I just mentioned. And that you can get for $2 a month. And we have lots of fun chats in there. At the $5 level, you can get a cool Alohomora decal. I have one on my laptop, and I love it. And at the $15 level, you can get a private reading from Michael. I don't know why everyone isn't doing that, because <laughs> <laughs> just to have Michael read at you for a little while sounds fantastic. <laughs> And at the $25 level, you can get a vintage Alohomora t-shirt and a private Skype chat with the host of your choosing. We're releasing fun tidbits on Patreon all the time. Uh, Michael just released one today, so uh, it, it will have been out for a while when this episode comes out. But definitely go over and take a listen to that. It's his thoughts on Cursed Child. Um, yeah, it's an hour long. So, yeah, lots, so excited. So, lots of fun happening over on Patreon. <laughs> brace yourselves. And I think Beth and Allison, you guys are planning to do some Cursed Child stuff too, right? Yeah. Um, since we are planning on recording a full episode soon, I don't know if I'm going to do a Patreon commentary, but I might. We'll see. Um, you probably should because yeah. it, it would balance. I'm I sure it'll balance out nice with. The previous ones. <laughs> I'm going to have way too many <laughs> thoughts to fit into the episode, so we'll see. <laughs> well, before we get into our shout-out Maximas, I want to give a trivia winner shout-out, <laughs> because we did a weird thing in episode 255, where I asked the other hosts if they could remember the name of the bandaged 
bandaged, that's hard to say, wizard who was sitting in the hogshead at the time of Dumbledore's armies forming. And they could not. So I was like, oh, ho, ho, we're going to have some fun with this. <laughs> and I put the question out to our listeners. The answer is Willie Wittershins. And we actually have two winners um, that I'm going to give shout outs to. I had said to post it on Twitter, um, but Blood Charm actually beat us to the punch and posted it on the main site very soon after the episode came out because they just already had it in their head. And they're like, oh, I know this. Da, 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 da. So kudos to Blood Charm and also to Sarah, a.k.a. Weensy or at Weensy the Pooh on Twitter, who answered us there. Congratulations to both of you and 50 points to your respective houses. <laughs> 50 is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how much you get taken away if you get if you're caught sneaking outside. <laughs> I am a generous teacher giver <laughs> when it comes to trivia yeah trivia is important it's very important <laughs> well tailing right off of katie's shout outs for that trivia question i want to make sure and do a few shout out maximas for some of our listeners uh from uh our previous uh chapter episode which is was episode 255 uh focusing on Order of the Phoenix, chapter sixteen, uh, in the Hogshead, and we had a lot of a lot of great comments on that particular chapter. But I wanted to shout out Maxima to Arthur Dent for some additional uh, providing some additional textual examples of variations on the Vanishing Charm to make Katie feel better about the Vanishing Kittens, uh, which is <laughs> <Yes>. really great, <laughs> and kind of confirmed some of my suspicions about Vanishing Charms that I expressed on the episode. Uh, we had a Great little chain from Sue, who, by the way, hasn't gotten comment in a while, so welcome back. And how am I going to translate this uh, about both Hermione at her worst in this chapter and a defense of Marietta Edgecombe? So, well done, ladies. There was uh, some defense of lots of questionable characters in this chapter. <laughs> so, yeah, it really made me think. So, so it was well, kind of, very, very well fun to... Turn it all, uh, turn it around on a, a lot of characters who we think we may know. Uh, and then another shout out Maxima to a seeker, not a finder for providing some reasons for why Aberforth might be living so close to Dumbledore in Hogsmeade. Uh, for another shout out Maxima for you're just as sane as I am. Again, welcome back. We, you, we saw you hadn't commented in a while, uh, who said they enjoyed the Zacharias Smith discussion. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that that was, uh, uh, well-received and uh, uh, perceived as uh, thoughtful and not just purely devil's advocate, devil on your shoulder uh, kind of thing, because uh, I think that's something we really like to do here at Alohomora is uh, really pull apart these Harry Potter characters and examine their uh, bad and their good, uh, regardless of who they, how they function in the narrative. So it was fun to dive deep in that, and we're glad you got something out of it. And... Some additional shout-out maximas to other participants, Davy B. Jones 999, Eric, Lisa, Oesle, Puff the Magic Raven, Rosmerda's Turquoise Shoes, Spinner's <laughs> End, and the weapon we have is love. Thank you so much, you guys, for participating in the discussion. And of course, listeners, just because the episode isn't over does not mean the discussion is. Please head over to alohomorapodcast.com where you can add your own thoughts and participate in the discussion on Episode 255. Three turns should do it. Chapter Revisit. Chapter Revisit. 
Chapter 18. He seemed a charming boy to me. Grindelwald. Albus Dumbledore. Shortly after his The life and lives of Albus Dumbledore. For the greater good. All right, so we are going to dive right into the discussion today. And in this chapter, Harry grapples with the loss of his wand, both emotionally and practically. With Hermione's stolen copy of The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, they learn together about Dumbledore's boyhood friendship with Gellert Grindelwald. This relationship is in stark contrast with everything Harry knows to be true about Dumbledore, and he must face the harsh truth that he didn't know the real Dumbledore at all. Harry is suddenly forced to face just how many secrets Dumbledore kept from him. Ugh, this is a good <laughs> chapter. <laughs> it is. It's a really good chapter. The drama. And since Fantastic Beast Crimes of Grindelwald is coming out so soon after this episode comes out, um, I want to kind of keep that in the back of our minds as we have this discussion. Um, so we're just kind of kind of read or go through the chapter through the lens of that coming out, even though we don't know everything that's going to be in that movie, obviously, yet. We're still in speculation mode, but we may do a little bit of that at the end of this episode as well. But just keep it's that in fun. mind. We don't get to do as much speculation these days anymore, so... Is... Yeah, it's a treat when we get yeah, to. Yeah, Speak Beastie gets to have all the fun. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fun to listen after the movie comes out and be like, wow, we were wrong oh, about yeah. that. We were wrong about that. We were wrong. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be fun to listen to because we're going to be like, oh my God, we were right about that. We were right about that. <laughs> Are you a Hufflepuff? <laughs> I'm being yes. a very practical Ravenclaw over here. The, yes, I am a Hufflepuff. Well spotted. <laughs> In either way, maybe we'll do a follow up for our Patreon, our patrons over on Patreon, if we got it either right or wrong. <laughs> maybe we'll follow up on that. We'll see. Uh, first thing I wanted to mention, just because I keep forgetting to look, um, the chapter art. At the very beginning of this chapter, there's, you know, the little image above each chapter. And I typically just, especially when I'm reading one of these books for the first time, I will completely not even let myself look at it or the title of the chapter because I feel like it's going to spoil me. I just skip it, go right in. Oh, see, but, I, I skip them uh, because I am so engrossed that I don't even pause between chapters. I just keep going. <laughs> And that too. <laughs> so, yeah. So whenever we do trivia and there was chapter titles, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I know. Unless I'm I've done an Alohomora episode on it, I'm useless at yeah. chapter titles. We did that recently at Trivia, Beth. I did a whole section that was all chapter titles. But to make it oh. not impossible, it was I would give two or three chapter titles and they all had the same word missing. So like if the word was Snape, it would be like, you know blanks something or you know so it would have the word snake missing oh, in each chapter that's title. so fun yeah most people got it right so just so you know like you can do chapter titles i know it <laughs> nice well the chapter art on this one is just a very sad picture of harry looking down at his broken wand and i just the, the look on his face just so, totally describes how he's feeling at the beginning of this chapter and it broke my heart 
So I just wanted to comment on it. He looks so dejected. And it's like the wand is on a table. So it's like he put, he like specifically put the broken wand on a table just so he could like sit and be sad at it. Oh, yeah. You can't, really like you can't see it's off, it's off, it's off the image. There's totally like, a, he's got like a candle on the side. There's like, he's doing a whole vigil. A framed before. photo of his wand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, I, I love that the chapter art that um, we get in the U S editions. Cause of course the UK doesn't have chapter mm-hmm. art. Um, oh, right. And so I always thought it was a treat to, cause I, I Mary, I see it's funny that you guys said you skip, you usually skip the chapter art. Cause I just kind of take it in as much as I can. Cause Mary Grand Prix is great about putting kind of little clues in for mm-hmm. what's coming up and giving you just a tantalizing peek into, into things. And it's always interesting when she chooses stuff that's maybe not necessarily, the big thing or that she she's working with a chapter where a lot of action isn't happening because really this chapter is just they read a book yeah i think that's my favorite thing about mary grand prix is the things that she chooses to highlight um Mm -hmm. and to be clear i do love her her chapter art i just first time through (laughs) totally skimmed over it but i love going back to look at them now (laughs) yeah yeah during the rereads it's a perfect time to yeah definitely really so I work in a bookstore, and at some point, Mary Grand Prix came to the store, and she drew a picture <gasps> on our wall. So ah. every day when I go to work, I get to see this picture. It's Hagrid and Harry just kind of, like, chilling together, and then she um, signed it. And then, you will not believe this, but J.K. Rowling actually came and signed the door right where I work. Not while I was there. Obviously, it was a long time ago. And drew a sorting hat. And and then signed next to it and then said, you belong at Hickleby's, which is our bookstore. So every day I get to see ah! it when I come into work. It's amazing. That is really cool. That's so cool. That's it's ama- a good perk. That's so nice that you get a, like a, you get exclusive artwork from both Rolling and Mary Grand Prix. How neat. Yeah. No kidding. I got to go to the, the exhibit at the historical society last mm, week mm-hmm. and they have some awesome art both from mary grand prix and from joe and also you know jim k and it's just so much fun to look at all that stuff nice mm-hmm. i'm jealous of all this art you guys have seen <laughs> <laughs> i'm just looking at this little black and white image and <laughs> But that is how the chapter begins. He is dealing with the loss of his wand that was broken during the escape from, um, I almost said Grimald Place. That's not it. Godric's <laughs> Hollow, as he and Hermione are trying to get away from Voldemort and Nagini. So there's this great prose section at the very beginning of this chapter that you should absolutely reread. Even if you don't read anything else in the chapter, just read the first couple of paragraphs. Um, there's one specific uh, sentence that I drew out to mention, and it says, simply to be alive, to watch the sun rise over the sparkling snowy hillside ought to have been the greatest treasure on earth, yet he could not appreciate it. And I love that because he was so close to being killed and he realizes that, but he's so sad about these other losses and these other things going on that he can't even appreciate that he escaped death. And then at the end of the book, when he is facing death, how that changes and how he realizes how precious life is. Um, so just the contraindication, I don't know what the word for that is, the opposite, um, 
of how he's feeling at this moment as to how he's feeling at the end of this book. I thought was really interesting. It was Yeah, that's so cool. He he goes through so much growth in the, you know, in, in all of the camping stuff in this book and Th- that's what makes me so frustrated when people are like, oh, this book is so boring. They're just camping through the whole thing because there's so much depth and he goes through so much, you know, as a person through all mm-hmm. of this that I find it to be incredibly rich. I absolutely agree. And I love the point you had here, Parker. Do you want to go into this about Harry's scars? Yeah, I love that we get a rundown of different scars he has. He talks about on his chest and uh, on his hand, which I'm guessing is the umbrage scar. Mm-hmm. Probably has multiple scars on his hands, I would guess, like fighting as much as he does. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was surprised at some of them that they didn't mention, but then I, I realized why. So the one that stood out to me was it didn't mention getting a scar from the basilisk, but the phoenix tears probably healed that wound, you know, right away and like completely closed it up so that it wouldn't scar, but... It made me wonder if something as powerful as Phoenix Tears could heal a scar after the fact. And if it could, if Harry would want to choose to heal any of those scars or if he would decide, like Dumbledore mentioned in book one, that some some scars are useful or, or are important badges of what we've been through. Um, but like for me, I'm like, wouldn't he want to get rid of that the one on the back of his hand from Umbridge because it was such a terrible thing that he went through. And yet at the same time, he was the guy who was like, I'm not going to change my story i'm not going to tell lies so i don't know what he would change if he could change his scars i don't think harry would actually i think he kind of takes it's i thought that was great that you cited the line from sorcerer's stone that dumbledore says because that's the one i was thinking of too um that your scars are useful and i think in a in the longer term context of potter the usefulness of scars is not just kind of surface level or magical but it's also as a reminder of what you've been through. Uh, as as it is, I'm pretty sure Rowling said that Harry, because there's, the, you know, there's there's a lot of talk, there, there was a lot of talk for a while about why the Basilisk Fang didn't kill the Horcrux in Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Rowling said that it's because Fox got to it in time. And if it had been longer, that could have caused some damage. But... Um, and done some stuff with that, but it's, I think there, I think there might be a time limit on certain things that Phoenix tears can heal, but Dumbledore does imply with that line in Sorcerer's Stone that some aesthetic scars can be taken away, um, or hidden at least by magic. Um, but I, I don't think Harry would choose to do that. I think that especially the I must not tell lies scar is, holds a lot of, I think you said it all Parker, but holds the a lot of significance for him. Yeah, I like to think that at some point in his life, like throughout his life, he'll look back on his scars and realize each scar is actually a map to somewhere that he is going to be at some point <laughs> in his life. Just like Dumbledore's <laughs> scars, a map of the of the underground. So maybe they're you know it's like just waiting for that moment in his life when he gets to that place and he's like, oh man, all along this has been a map. <laughs> I love it. You know, I have to say, too, this opening section, out of context, sounds very melodramatic. <laughs> like, it was kind of weird reading it without the context of the previous chapters, because I I did remember, like, generally what happens right before this, but it was kind of funny to, you know, open with, 
the the, the son was indifferent to him and his suffering. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> so. I actually did not remember what came right before this. Uh, I was reading this chapter on the subway in New York City, and Allison was sitting right next to me, and so she was sort of like reading over my shoulder. And I read the first paragraph, and I was like, "Hold on!" And I swiped a couple of pages back because I was like. Mm. I don't remember what happens right before this, but it seems important. Cho dumped him, and he's like, simply to be alive should be great, but Cho dumped him. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still a testament to Rowling's writing that even as I just read along with this chapter, the way that she kind of gently summarizes what happened without going into the full detail because it just happened Mm -hmm. still gets you caught up to speed. Like, after maybe a few sentences, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And, like, as I was reading it, I just stepped right back into that place where I think Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be as a reader, which is astonishing to do that when the chapter is out of context. Like that's crazy. Um, yeah, that, that, that her writing can do that. Mm -hmm. OGM. For (laughs) sure. So after he, well, I mean, he's not done grieving the loss of his wand, but he moves on from thinking about his wand to thinking about Dumbledore, uh, because he decides to put the broken pieces of his wand into the moleskin purse or what a pouch that Hagrid has given him. And there are a couple of quotes here that tell us what he's feeling and thinking, and I'll just read those real quick. I said, uh, Harry's hand brushed the old snitch through the moleskin, and for a moment he had to fight the temptation to pull it out and throw it away. Impenetrable, unhelpful, useless, like everything else Dumbledore had left behind. And his fury at Dumbledore broke over him now like lava, scorching him inside, wiping out every other feeling. Dumbledore had left them to grope in the darkness, to wrestle with the unknown and undreamed of terrors, alone and unaided, Nothing was explained. Nothing was given freely. So he's super, super mad at Dumbledore right now. (laughs) Yeah. He's lava mad. Yeah. It really, it really stood up to me, um, in this read through how he talks about the snitch that it was, you know, useless, unhelpful. Um, and that made me think about what Dumbledore was thinking when he left Harry the snitch with the stone inside. And, and I think it wasn't meant to be useful. Um, it it was meant to provide Harry a little bit of comfort when he needed it, but it's so interesting that he's right. (laughs) It is, it is useless and yet it's not. Yeah. I could see how it would be, an emotional reminder for him of a time when he had victory. So he, he's got these dark moments and yet it's like, remember that time when you won that Quidditch game, even though you felt like you didn't know what you were doing and you still pulled it off. Like, remember that? So it Mm -hmm. could be, you're you're right, Beth. Like it could have just been more of something like, here's an emotional help for you until you're ready for what's inside. Right. And yet instead it feels to Harry, like a reminder of, the nothing that he has to go on right now. Yeah. Yeah. He can't see past that fury um, to think about the positive memories associated with it and that there still could be a plan in place for it that he just has not gotten to yet or figured out yet. Um, he's, he knows Dumbledore enough by now that I think it, it shouldn't really be a surprise 
that nothing was explained, nothing was given freely, as he says. Like, that's been the entire series. That's nothing new, Harry. Well, and that's that's why, you know, reading this, I was struck by, like, oh my gosh, this rant is what the reader has been feeling for much longer than this. <laughs> like, yes. you know, you're you're reading through the series and you're like, Dumbledore, why don't you just tell him things? <laughs> you say you're going to tell him everything, actually tell him things. Mm, and yeah. And now Harry is realizing that as well, that really Dumbledore didn't tell him nearly enough. My friend Sen had a really interesting point on this, which is I, I was saying that Harry is so secretive himself and he's always telling his friends, oh, I have to do this on my own. Like, I, I'm going to spare you guys. And I'm like, Harry, you're just like Dumbledore. So my friend Sen said, yeah, but that's the only people he had to learn from. He didn't have anyone but secretive adults who always hid things from him. So he himself has learned to hide things. But at this point in his life, he's like, man, I'm tired of everyone hiding things from me his aunt and uncle and Dumbledore. So even though he's kind of a hider himself, I can see where at this point it's like, it's all he's ever known and he's sick of it. Yeah. He's just over it. Well, and in some ways that's like not because of course with Ron's departure, there's an influence from the Horcrux there, but Ron even cites that him and Hermione thought Harry knew more than he did. Mm -hmm. And, Harry gets frustrated with that because he's been he's he's done exactly that like you said you're saying Parker but it's backfired on him to the point that Hermione and Ron still think he's keeping stuff from them even though at this point he's not um and that that fed into Ron's insecurities about the whole thing and that's part of why he left um so I I, I it it seems like a perfect point for Harry to be at a loss with this because he doesn't have any more secrets because he doesn't have anything else to go off of at this point. There's no information that's hidden from him. And kind of the idea with looking at the snitch and thinking that there might still be something to it, I think is just additionally f frustrating at this point because mm -hmm. it's, he knows it's another puzzle. Um, and he doesn't want puzzles anymore because he all, him and Hermione almost just died uh, a few hours ago. Um, so it's, it's, I think he's kind of at the point where he's like, yeah, no, puzzles aren't fun anymore. I don't like puzzles. I'm a Gryffindor, not a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Death yeah. puzzles. The best puzzles ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard when the, the idea is that the puzzles are supposed to emotionally prepare and like emotionally and mentally prepare you for something that's that you're only going to be ready for by gaining certain experiences in life. Like that's pretty, that's a pretty high order. Like that wouldn't be really possible for Dumbledore to have explained to Harry to be like, so once you can open this snitch, it means you have a full understanding of death. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to create a puzzle where you can only solve it once you have a full understanding of death. Like, <laughs> get to the last page when you have a full understanding of death. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So I think Harry's, Harry's annoyance is, is justified, but it's, it's that classic point where you're kind of at the, the, our hero is kind of at one of his lowest points. He's almost lowest. He's about to be drug a little lower because this is JK Rowling and we can always <laughs> go a little lower. <laughs> and he can't just be mad at those things. He's also upset with Hermione. <laughs> okay. And Michael, you my favorite part it. of the chapter. <laughs> yes. Oh, you want, Michael, you... you must read these quotes. Do you want me to read this? Okay. 
<clears throat> Gosh. See, this is why everybody's got to go in on the Patreon $15 level, because I need more practice. I don't get to read to anybody <laughs> anymore. Let's see. Um, poor, poor Hermione. So she comes out of the tent. And uh, this is all, like, perfectly post-Harry Harry having a fume about Hermione in his head. <laughs> and then yes. she comes out of the tent and says, You're still really angry at me, aren't you? said Hermione. He looked up to see fresh tears leaking out of her eyes and knew that his anger must have shown in his face. No, he said quietly. No, Hermione, I know it was an accident. You were trying to get us out of there alive, and you were incredible. I'd be dead if you hadn't been there to help me. And then he gives her, like, this really sad, false smile. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much because uh, Hermione saves Harry's butt a gazillion times throughout these books, and she rarely gets thanked for doing it. Um, and this is a moment where Harry is saying, like, yes, y you are important, I could not have done this without you. And acknowledging her like that is a great moment for her. Um, but I'm also super proud of Harry because he's usually not able to, like, recognize those emotions and get control of them. Um, and it's clear that he's mm. growing up and maturing because he's able to do that. Um, and I think we've all been in a position like this where we are... Uh, potentially unjustifiably mad at somebody and then once we realize that that anger is you know being demonstrated that then we we feel bad about it and try and walk it back because we know they didn't mean it um and i just this this scene was so relatable to me and showed so much growth in harry's character and I just love it. You could easily like that. That's a great way to put it, Beth. Cause I, especially with Harry's growth. Cause I, you could, I was just thinking you could, I, I was thinking of all the times that Harry has wrongly been angry with Hermione and not yeah. apologized to her. And you could take this line and like transpose it to the prisoner of Azkaban yeah. piece right after the broom stuff. And mm -hmm. it would pretty much be just the same. I think there was, there was always this issue through Harry and Ron's eyes that Hermione is being, kind of uppity and haughty about the rules and how she does things. And mm -hmm. regardless of if she's just literally maybe saved their lives. Um, so it's nice that, yes, he is able to swallow that annoyance and realize that it's misdirected at Hermione and to right. thank her for what she did. Because, yes, we could easily retitle these books Hermione Granger and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah. And... <laughs> So, well, and in this situation, there's literally nothing that she could have done differently. Like she no. did everything she possibly could have. And but like we we've all experienced a time where our anger is, you know, pl misplaced and we can't see that for a minute. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Raising hand as to poster child for that. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, my poor husband. Like, there's just been times where, yeah, it's something is a total accident. Like, he'll step on my toe. Yeah. You know, something stupid. And I'm like, in pain and like, ow, whatever. But I'm not like, actually mad at him. Because I, 
completely realized it was an accident, but that still doesn't take away the pain I'm feeling in that moment (laughs) and the upsetness I have that my foot is injured in that moment. Um, So, yeah, I I feel Harry and he handled this better than I probably would have if I were in his shoes. And and being in that intense emotional situation, it's really hard to, you know, in that moment, remove yourself from that emotion a little bit enough to acknowledge it. And yeah, I I don't want to sell Harry short here. Like that's really hard to do. Um, And Hermione needed to hear that right now. Like she was really beating herself up about this. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, he did, he did a good thing by apologizing. Yeah. It makes me wonder what Hermione's thinking in this chapter. I wonder if she's like, Oh, we're, that's it. We're screwed. The wand is broken, but she's not (laughs) saying it, you know? Yeah. Oh, she knows. Yeah, I think she knows. What I mean, she she doesn't so much, and Harry notes that in the narration, believe in the power of Harry's one to the degree that mm-hmm. he does. Um, but I know she knows that he values that wand and so that i mean that's that's something that this book in particular also really builds up well too is a relationship that the characters have with their wands um Mm -hmm. so harry will get kind of a i this farther this this happens farther down the line that harry gets a bit of a perverse satisfaction when hermione doesn't have her wand (laughs) and he's just like i mean i'm not going to say i told you so but it's not nice, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's not nice when your Laurel Wand turns on you because you got bored for a moment, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think we're going to get into it a little bit more later um, about how Hermione reacts to Harry in this chapter. But uh, I think that she can tell that this is a huge morale hit for Harry. Mm. And mm-hmm. even if she didn't you know, intentionally break his wand, she knows that this is a, this is going to be a big, like, emotional deal deal for Harry, and at a time when he really can't afford to not be on top of his game emotionally, um, and they're, they're already struggling with morale, like, they're, they're feeling really down, and this was just, this came at a really bad time, and Hermione is acutely aware of that. Yes. Well, and on top of that, and this is, you know, we were talking about how proud we are of Harry in this instance, but we should also talk about how proud we are of Hermione, not only because of what she did in the previous chapter, but remembering, too, as we were kind of saying about Ron and Harry's annoyances with her in the past, she's also biting her tongue about the fact that she told Harry that it wasn't a good idea to go to Godric's Hollow, yeah. that it was probably a trap. Um, and it's kind of like, in the, I think this is one of those instances where Hermione doesn't feel good about being right. Yeah. Um, because it had, because the location, and she saw that with when they went to the graveyard, but that that place had an emotional connection for Harry and that I think she understands his insistence and the value of going there for him as personally, but that as a move in the chess game, it was a mistake. Yeah, definitely. And I think just as the Resurrection Stone isn't, you know, technically useful, but will help Harry really significantly, I think even though going to Godric's Hollow was a huge mistake, that the benefit that Harry got from being able to see his parents' graves and see where his parents lived and died, I think that 
was really important for his journey through the end of this book. Um, mm. And I don't think that, you know, if you could go all the way to the end of this book and say, what would I have done differently? I, I don't think that they should have avoided Godric's Hollow. I think they should, still should have gone. Especially yeah. since on the tombstone, the, the parents' tombstone, it talks about death being defeated. And I think mm-hmm. that for the end of the book, when he has to decide what he's going to do and whether he's going to risk his life or give his life and then what he's going to do at King's Cross Station, I think it was really important for him to see that his parents also felt like there's more to what's coming than just death. So he, I think he needed that. It doesn't really mention it later, but he does see his parents later. So I feel like seeing that on their tombstone is, is really important for him to have in the back of his mind. You're totally right. That is huge. And Hermione is the person who gives him that understanding because mm-hmm. when Harry reads the quote, he's he angry. thinks, yeah, he's, he thinks it's a Death Eater um, mantra. And Hermione notes that there's actually a double meaning to the quote and that you there's a choice with how you can read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We should be talking yeah. about the last chapter. The last chapter is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, even though it's understandable here that Harry is so upset to lose his wand, I think, I don't know if it's because I was reading it as a writer. I was just like, oh, good, finally. Like, we need to move past the point where he's safe because because the those twin cores do help keep him safe from Voldemort to an extent, but even... Uh, they they keep presenting a stalemate. You know, neither one of them mm-hmm. is going to be able to defeat the other as long as this twin core issue is arising. So it's it's almost a relief in the sense of you know how the plot has to progress because you're thinking now that you can't rely on that wand anymore and now that you're not thinking about shields, now you're going to find a way to actually defeat. So having that wand really was holding him back and I don't think that he ever saw it that way. But losing the wand, even though emotionally it's crushing... Strategically, it's it's a good thing for it to have happened. Yeah, the I love of- your note about that. I had never thought about it that way until I read your note, and I'm like, oh my god, she's totally right. <laughs> if he had kept that wand, the ending would be completely different, and I don't see how he would have succeeded. So yeah, I'm sure this point. is totally intentioned, but it just like hit me that basically the wand, like in 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 being an extension of Harry, it. It does go through the same things as Harry, and then it dies and it gets resurrected. <laughs> yeah, and oh my gosh, the point where oh, he man. in this chapter, the point where he's looking at the wand, as is shown in the chapter illustration, he's thinking he. It actually is this phrase that says "all all is ashes" or something like that, and it's mm. it's great that she uses that phrase because it really echoes the idea of the phoenix dying and going to ash and then being reborn and it's just like a hint right there like a hint like harry yes your wand is broken you think it's ashes but you know what's coming next is is more important and not only with your wand but also the fact that harry's gonna be ashes and then rise too Mm -hmm. love it but not in this chapter (laughs) in this chapter we're gonna find out something else to make him angry (laughs) (laughs) we couldn't just have one emotional blow in this chapter (laughs) no no no. we gotta keep them coming so along with the warm tea that hermione has brought with her out into the chilly cold yeah we're gonna spill some other tea too She's brought a copy of Rita Skeeter's book, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, that she picked up at Matilda Bagshot's house. Yeah, Harry couldn't hold on to a photograph. Hermione picked up a book. 
on the way out. That's why I love Hermione. She's like, I managed to grab a book on my way. You're like, I <laughs> stopped by the library before we left. <laughs> so they're looking for the picture of the Elder Wand thief to try to figure out who he was since uh, Harry did drop the photograph. And they flip through, they find out, or they find the picture, and they find out, dun, 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 it was Grindelwald, of no. all people. Who's that? And then they're like, what <laughs> the? Gellert, Grindelwald, you mean, like, the most horrible wizard of all time, except for you-know-who kind of Grindelwald? Yes, indeed. Um, Never heard of him. So they go back and read the entire chapter that details. Which, by the way, just the way is so subtle, but the way that Joe writes how they read the chapter is so lovely. How they like start reading in the middle and then need more and like have to flip back. And I don't, that's just struck me at how well written that very short passage was. <laughs> that's a good point. Cause yeah, they're so hungry for that information yeah. that they just dive right in and they're like, wait a minute, we're losing some context here. We need to go back to the beginning of this chapter to understand exactly what's being said and that they read it together. And I'm, I'm sure Hermione is reading it like twice the speed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's never rushing him. She's like, turn the page. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> A friend of mine um, and her twin sister used to uh, read the books together when they came out, like when they first came out. And I did so that with my husband. Like we would sit next to each other and read it. Yeah. And then they would be like, okay, next page. Yeah. Next page. And then they'd turn the page. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> we did that. We like put a, we put a tent in our living room because I wanted to go camping and read the last book together camping. And my husband was like, no, that's going to be cold. So we put it in our living room and then we like sat in the tent and we like, do you turn the page? Okay. Put your finger on the page when you want to turn it because I'm ready to move on. So yeah. Mm. That's adorable. Adorable. <laughs> I did read the last book next to my husband as well, but I was not that patient. I just kept blowing through it. <laughs> he kept getting up to get me food. So I finished it before him. <laughs> He's like, why are you gasping? Who's dying? You're like, nobody. And I was like, I'm not going to say anything. These are not tears on my face. I'm just, you know, allergies. It's, that's all it is. <laughs> so we've got a couple of quotes here to kind of get us into what they're reading. Uh, the Some of the more important parts. Um, as Grindelwald never extended his campaign of terror to Britain, however, the details of his rise to power are not widely known here. Uh, that quote I actually pulled out because it's very interesting. It's, for one, it's the opposite of Voldemort. Um, and two, now we know more about, through Fantastic Beasts, where he extended his campaign. And it was not just where he was from. Like, he went all over Europe. Um, in the old episode where you guys were talking about this chapter, you know, before you even knew that a Fantastic Beasts movie was coming, um, Y'all were speculating that it was just like around Bulgaria or wherever Durmstrong was. But now we know it was much wider spread than that. All, and yet in this book, Rita Skeeter is saying that Voldemort is still the most dark, you know, the darkest wizard of all time, even above Grindelwald. Um, but she knows so little about Grindelwald from what she says in this chapter that I'm like, woman, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I mean, we will find out more hopefully in these in these movies, and it'll be great once we have all of that information to compare the two villains. But as far as where they, you know, the extent of the the range of their attacks and where they were trying to influence and where they were trying to make a difference or change the world for whatever they wanted for their purposes. Grindelwald went much further. Mm -hmm. So, is it in the books, or is this just a a theory that um, 
he didn't really go much into Britain because he was avoiding Dumbledore. That's, I think, a theory. It's I, yeah. I want to say that maybe have been might have been mentioned, but it's more so that that's coming from. In some ways, it's coming from Dumbledore. That Dumbledore is not is avoiding Grindelwald more, but I. Sure. I don't. I I don't know if I mean, and that'll be interesting to see too, with the movies because if Grindelwald, because I think I think that's more, Voldemort was avoiding Dumbledore than Grindelwald sure. ever was because, as we've seen from the trailer, Grindelwald is, seems to have been like, oh hey Dumbledore on multiple occasions. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we'll see. Yes, and we get to know a bit about. Grindelwald as a young man says at 16 years old even Durmstrang felt it could no longer turn a blind eye to the twisted experiments of Gellert Grindelwald and he was expelled hitherto all that has been known of Grindelwald's next movements is that he traveled abroad for some months it can now be revealed that Grindelwald chose to visit his great aunt in Godric's hollow dot 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 and which is where he meets Dumbledore of course I've always wanted to know what these experiments are I feel like they're the the things referenced in the the letters and all of that we know Grindelwald was up to don't really explain the word experiment, which is great. Yes, it's it, it was back in the day when the Harry Potter series had restraint and didn't explain everything to you as a reader <laughs> or a viewer. It's I that's what I enjoy about that because I Rowling as a writer knows and to some degree still knows that the things that you don't show are more affecting to a reader than the things that you do. And that's definitely one of those things. I always think of like the only thing I can, like I always go back to when I read that point, a completely different series, which listeners, if you've ever played the kingdom hearts video games, I always think of that because there's lots of discussion in that series about experimenting with people's hearts and souls and minds and, what that does to people. Um, so I, and, and we know too, that there's like very dangerous things to tamper with in magic and in Rowling's world it seems to actually be similar to themes in kingdom hearts that tampering with the, you know, the mind, the heart, the body, the soul are things that are considered extreme dark magic that you shouldn't play with. And so I'm, I'm assuming that that's kind of maybe the stuff that Grindelwald was tinkering with. I'm so tempted to think that there's going to be a big parallel between Grindelwald and Dumbledore, or not Dumbledore, Voldemort. Um, with Voldemort having set up all of the Horcruxes, I just wonder if mm. if Rowling wants to make a parallel to that and not sort of like, you know, it's a Horcrux, but it's now it's slightly different, like a you know a Gorecrux, but just something where he's <laughs> setting up like how can I make sure I'm invincible and how can I experiment on other people to find out how to build up my defenses so that no one could ever defeat me. So I'm curious to see if, if she'll just create mm. some parallels. Yeah, I mm. that's interesting. Um, I get the vibe from Grindelwald that he's not as worried about himself. I think Voldemort is, his entire rise to power is selfish. Um, and mm. I don't, he somehow gets people to follow him because he's super persuasive, but all of his pursuits are self-indulgent. Whereas uh, Grindelwald, it seems like, at least uh, presents his arguments in a much more um, community-centric way. 
Um, he seems much more to be leading others as opposed to I'm a powerful person and you want to be with me just for my power, you know? Um, I wonder if Dumbledore kind of taught him how to do that. Because it says here he was expelled from Durmstrung for near fatal attacks upon fellow students. So when he was starting out, like, he was not holding back. He was like legit almost killing people as a 16-year-old. Um, well, and we have that, that quote from Dumbledore in the letter. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm looking for it. Uh, when he says he doesn't mind that he got expelled? Uh, yeah. Um, we would have never met. Yeah, this was your mistake at Durmstrong, but I do not complain because if you had not been expelled, we would never have met. Mm. Yeah, but mm-hmm. what he says right before this was your mistake was that, um, they will use force only when necessary. Uh, like only when completely necessary. And then he says that was your mistake. And so, um, those near fatal encounters with other students sound like they were Grindelwald trying to persuade other people to follow him or something, um, and needing to use force to do that. And so if Dumbledore taught him how to, you know, use his persuasion, with his argument uh, to get people on his side, man, that's that's, that's chilling. Dark, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he didn't mean to he do it in that to, way, but yeah. But yeah, to to think that you, in a way, created your own enemy. You know that this guy would have been bad no matter oh, what, but you yeah. taught him how to be better at being bad inadvertently. That that must be really crushing for Dumbledore if that's what happened. Yeah. And it it does seem also from this letter that Dumbledore is the one that said for the greater good. He right. put that idea in Grindelwald's head and then Grindelwald ran with it. So when I believe yeah. we have a, a quote uh, further down here about um, that Joe said in an interview about Grindelwald being dazzled by Dumbledore's brilliance. And I feel like if Grindelwald even a little bit admired Dumbledore, I'm sure that he pulled a lot from Dumbledore and used that in maybe a way that Dumbledore <laughs> doesn't approve of. Yeah. That's making me wonder then about Grindelwald's motivations because, you know, I'm thinking of Voldemort who just, only, you're right, who only ever cared about himself. But I wonder if even though mm-hmm. Grindelwald was kind of twisted if part of him was like, no, this, you know, this is actually good for other people. I, I get to have the power and I get to be in control, but I'm actually in a way helping people too. I, I don't know if that was just something he adopted to tell people so they would follow him and kind of adopting that slogan for the greater good as, as a lie. Or if part of him was like, no, this is really good for me to be a ruler. Like, this is a good thing. I know for sure that at least Dumbledore thought that that was the right thing for other people. Um, but Grindelwald, I'm not so sure. Yeah, he could have just been playing around. Or playing into what Dumbledore thought, or yeah, playing along, I guess is what I'm trying to say, um, to appease Dumbledore and make him think they're on the same page, when in reality, once they get down to it, he probably would have gone back to his old ways of using but he force kept that slogan, not necessary. Because right. he had it on his prison later. So he, I mean, he kept going with it, either as a strategy to fool the public, or as something that he half-heartedly believed in, in his own evil way. Well, I think it's possible that he believed that he, it was really for the good of magic kind. 
I don't know that he ever really believed that it was for the good of non-magic kind. Yeah. Um, I think that's either a lie or something that he convinced himself of that he never, you know, fully believed. But Dumbledore definitely came at it from the perspective of, like, we can be, we can do good for non-magic people as well. Uh, I I don't know that Grindelwald was ever concerned about that. I think I agree with you. I think Grindelwald was like, yeah, 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 Dumbledore, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting, too, because Dumbledore has more reason to hate muggles than Grindelwald, as far as we know. Like, we don't know what happened up until this point in Grindelwald's life, but muggles literally tore Dumbledore's family apart. That's what you know, turned Adriana or Ariana, sorry, um, into what she became. That's what took his father away to prison because he attacked them because of what they did. And then eventually, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. Um, so he really has a lot of reason to hate them, but instead he doesn't. He, he actually is concerned about their welfare and wanting to make sure that they are taken care of. Uh, and have this resp- he feels this responsibility to take care of them when they take over so to speak which is says a lot to me about Dumbledore um you know Rita Skeeter w- would never put that idea in your head she's making sure to paint him in the worst light possible which of course at this moment in time that's all Harry can see himself as well that's all he can feel is exactly what she is presenting and saying that everyone should think this or whatever um, but now that I'm thinking about it more, I'm like, actually, you know, he could have been a lot worse than he was at that, at that age. Yeah. Not that he was great at that age, but he could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about, uh, the fact that they, Skeeter mentions that Dumbledore had just left Hogwarts in a blaze of glory. He had just published this big paper on transfiguration. So he, I think to publish a paper like that and and to feel that way that you want to have some public notice shows that you have at least some ego, like maybe not a huge ego, but at least some ego. And then here comes Grindelwald who is probably playing into Dumbledore's ego and, and only really appealing to Dumbledore's worst qualities by being like, wow, Dumbledore, you're so good at things. You know, you, you should rule. We should rule together because <laughs> wizards are amazing. And, and uh, I think Dumbledore says later on that he really learned from that devastating friendship when it fell apart, that it's not good for him to have people play into his ego. And it made me wonder about the connection to book one, where he decides that Harry Potter has to be hidden away from the wizarding world, partly because the fame will be bad for Harry, you know, for him to always be famous as the boy who lived, because that's a lesson that's so ingrained in Dumbledore's brain now that maybe he's thinking, Oh, I need to spare Harry from this because it could go badly for him like it did for me if people appeal to his ego too much. I could definitely see that. I mean, he Harry proves him wrong. You know, years later, um, he's able to say, yeah, it's a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those like you have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. Um and before that, he is saying, you know, I'd proven to myself as a young man that power was my weakness. So, uh, yeah, I agree. He, he could have been projecting that fear onto Harry and saying, you know, well, if I, in all my brilliance, was susceptible to that, then this little boy 
who would be brought up to think he's just the greatest thing on the face of the earth could easily fall into that same trap. Um, and maybe he would have if he were brought up in that in the wizarding world with all of these people telling him how wonderful he was. But I am the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that definitely could have played into it. I've, I mean, I've never really put this together. But, you know, that, of course, that night Minerva is so insistent that the Dursleys are horrible, horrible people. And Dumbledore's just like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And <laughs> like, uh, but to think maybe too that because, you know, people do wonder, and of course there is an element of the blood connection from Petunia that partially explains that. But I also wonder if there's not an element of ensuring that Harry, whoever is taking care of Harry doesn't suffer knowing that he's going to die. Um, oh, might have been trying to spare his potential caregivers that oh my gosh. loss. <laughs> That's I, so dark. Why? <laughs> wow. It's, I never thought of that one. I <laughs> think someone who won't love him so they won't be heartbroken. <laughs> 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 well, because that's the aspect well, that he's okay. coming from it from in a way, yeah. because yeah. he could take care of Harry if he so oh, chose yeah. to, but he doesn't. And he talks to Harry multiple times about, especially by past order of the Phoenix of like, I didn't want to care about you. I didn't want to feel love for you because I know what's going to happen to you. Um, so that's, yeah, maybe that's a part of it too. That's really sad. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because Dumbledore would have been really tempted to just, if he had raised Harry, he probably would have been tempted to say, you know what, we don't need to do the Horcrux thing. Like, let's just forget about that. I'm sure there'll be another way that works out. I don't think he would have been able to understand <laughs> his affection. Yes. Let's just move to America yes. and forget that Voldemort <laughs> <Yeah>. exists. <laughs> I mean, at some point, Harry will die of old age, and then that Horcrux will be gone, and someone else can take up the fight, right? Yep. <laughs> it's like getting rid of your loans. Eventually, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> so much modern-day relevance. Yeah. <laughs> it all ties. Well, in. and, yeah, we, we know that... Um, Dumbledore needed this relationship with Grindelwald to teach him that part about himself, that he um, was easily blinded by love and that um, he, you know, was not well suited for power because he liked it. And I'm curious what would have happened if Ariana hadn't died, if the the fight hadn't occurred um, because that sort of pumped the brakes and broke things off between them. But if that hadn't happened, would Dumbledore still have figured out that he, you know, that Grindelwald was manipulating his desire for power or his affection for Grindelwald um, to get Dumbledore to, to work with him? Would Dumbledore have realized how dangerous all of that was? How soon would he have realized it? Um, would he have gone through with any of the horrible things that Grindelwald did? Or would he have pumped the brakes sooner? I, or, or would he have, you know, tried to bring Grindelwald to a middle? Um, I'm just so fascinated about what could have happened if they had stayed together longer. I think if, if that had happened, Dumbledore would have had to experience another, like, life-shattering major mm -hmm. event of some kind. Into because as 
as sad as the Ariana thing is, it does lend to Dumbledore's understanding of why this is why this needs to stop. So yeah, I think I think he would have had something down the line. I think if he had gone farther down the line, the point of the split would have been when Dumbledore would have seen that Grindelwald's actions were not matching up with their ideals or what they had planned. And that, mm-hmm. like, I think it would have been obvious at a certain point that Grindelwald is going a different direction. If if the first Fantastic Beast is any indication, Grindelwald's not very good at hiding himself. No. <laughs> well, even though everybody around him thinks he is, he's not. He's pretty obvious. He's like, look at my Deathly Hallows keychain that I just keep <laughs> in plain sight. Um, so I, I question whether... Dumbledore would have been able to keep going with that. But that also raises the question, too, of if Dumbledore had been allowed to go that far with Grindelwald, would he have also gotten to a point where he, if he had split from Grindelwald, would he himself have gone on to pursue this world that he had thought of? Um, Would he still be interested in maybe bringing magic to the Muggle world? Yeah. And then, but still subjugating them in a way. I think as you were saying, um, Dumbledore would have been sort of swept away by Grindelwald regardless of how long. Um, and that he would have needed sort of a, a rude awakening to break away from Grindelwald. And if that's true, I think after that rude awakening, whatever it could have been, that he wouldn't have been able to continue along that path. I think the Dumbledore that we know would be too broken by whatever it was that caused that break from Grindelwald. Well, and we know too that Dumbledore is so in like with all of his life experiences, love always ends up being a major factor in his life. And I think Mm -hmm. probably what the shocker would have been is that he would have gone down this path thinking that there was a future for a relationship with him in Grindelwald, and I don't think Grindelwald wanted that. Um, and I think at well, a certain I- point, especially if Grindelwald had been allowed to get more powerful and carried away with what he wanted, if Dumbledore had asked for that relationship or continued to, to insist on that relationship, I don't think Grindelwald would have let him into that. And I think that might have been the na- major break. I think you're right, and I think as well, um, since... Dumbledore's intentions were good. I think he also, uh, being blinded by his love for Grindelwald, just assumes that Grindelwald's intentions are also good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think having that blow up in his face of, you know, trusting someone and loving someone and believing that they were a good person and finding out that they aren't would be just catastrophic to go through. Yeah, Probably the first time Grindelwald would have killed a muggle. Like, oh, Dumbledore, we really had to do that. I think that's when Dumbledore would have been like, wait a second. Like, I thought we were doing this for their good. And I don't think that Grindelwald would have been able to stop himself from doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Good point. Well, they're only together for two months uh, before Ariana dies. And wow. <laughs> Grindelwald takes off. And we all know why. So 
There is a quote from Rita's book it says, Neither Dumbledore nor Grindelwald ever seems to have referred to this brief boyhood friendship in later life. However, there can be no doubt that Dumbledore delayed, for some five years of turmoil, fatalities, and disappearances, <laughs> his attack upon Gellert Grindelwald. To which I'm like, five years? More like 20! <laughs> um, and I'm really interested to, interested to see how this coalesces with the upcoming films. Um, and I think it may just be that the British public, like we mentioned before, didn't know how long Grindelwald had been asserting his influence and gaining followers and murdering people since it was happening outside of Britain. Um, but I'm still surprised that by this point in the mid-90s, the British wizarding public still seems to think that there was only a five-year delay between when Grindelwald went cuckoo and started killing people and when Dumbledore defeated him. Like, is that an oopsie by Joe, or is that just British A math oopsie? Of... That doesn't sound like her. <laughs> <laughs> we know that she has made some, and especially when it comes to numbers. So it's a number. But uh, I, I could also see that because this was not actually happening in Britain, I mean, we, we saw the uh, newspaper headings and so forth at the very beginning of the first Fantastic Beasts film that were coming from all of all all of the European countries and America. So you would think they knew what was going on, but because it wasn't affecting them personally, maybe they weren't paying as much attention. I think this is a retcon issue. Actually. It very well could be. Um, rather than a math error. I mean, it's a math error farther down the line, but more, more of a retcon in that it was a one line thing with the five year. Cause this, that would imply that, it really ramped up in 1940, correct? Because Dumbledore takes yeah. Grindelwald down in 45 at the end of World War II. Um, yep. So, gee, I wonder what that's a parallel for. But the <laughs> <laughs> so that so yeah that I, I mean I don't know we haven't even gotten into the 40s yet. In nope. Fantastic Beasts, of course, too. You know, I, I guess if you look at it that from the American perspective, the the U.S. wizards are burying their head in the sand about everything. Um, so mm. they're not really, they're trying to stay out of it. Um, and the U.K. wizards, it sounds too like they're kind of just suspecting that things are going on, but they're not actively involving. Like the, the wizards all seem to know that Grindelwald's doing stuff, but they're not, nobody's up to actually challenging him. Um, yeah, they just have a few aurors out looking for him, mm -hmm. like Theseus. Yeah, and as we saw in that opening scene of the first Fantastic Beasts movie, anytime any groups of aurors go to challenge him, they all immediately die. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Is it just that, was there just a call for Dumbledore? Like, Dumbledore, we need you. Bat signal. Go fight. Ball. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to wait five years. So is that like literally what they're just saying? Like, oh, we asked him to. We literally asked him to and he waited five years. That'll be interesting seeing as they, the, at least the ministry, the UK ministry seems to be questioning Dumbledore already about stuff in the second mm -hmm. movie. Yeah. Um, so, but maybe there, maybe, maybe kind of like what you're saying, Parker, there, there was a, International Confederate of Wizards call upon Dumbledore yeah. around 1940. And let me see, Parker, you were talking about the explanations that Rita gives for his delay. Yeah, I never trust Rita's heater. She just 
wants everything to be salacious as possible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect she's a beetle. I'm not sure though. <laughs> <laughs> so she she says either Dumbledore delayed battling Grindelwald because he was reluctant to face his childhood friend, or the you know a darker reason that he was worried. Facing Grindelwald would expose the fact they had once planned together to rule over muggles as childhood friends. But I, I, I'm sure it's a third reason, you know, that they, that Dumbledore had to delay. I, I mean, it could have been emotional as well, but I feel like Dumbledore is the kind of guy who moves forward even when his emotions are pretty strong. And, and you know, like with Harry, he's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this even though you're 17 years old, like you have to move forward in this. So I just wonder if... There was a reason Dumbledore had to delay that he couldn't necessarily share. So breaking down some kind of defenses, he does. It does show in the preview something where he says that Newt Scamander, you know, I need you to do this, and it has to be you. So I just wonder if there's something complicated going on where he was kind of working behind the scenes, but it seemed like a delay. Well, I think we know from the King's Cross chapter that it was an emotional delay on his part, at least partially. That might not be explaining all of it. But he mm-hmm. described it to Harry as an emotional thing, like, how could I face this person who I loved, but they're doing these horrible things, but I didn't know if I killed my sister or if he killed her. And I was so scared to find out and it possibly be me. And then I would have even more guilt to deal with. So I, that's how he explains it, at least um, to Harry, is that he couldn't face Grindelwald because he couldn't bear finding out who actually killed Ariana. But you're right. In the second film, we're finding out that there seems to be more to it. I think a prophecy has been talked about. Um, I don't know if it has to do with Newt or is it Erlita. Uh, that's still kind of up in the air. We'll, we'll have to find out after the movie comes out. But yeah, it seems like there's more at play here than just emotional reasons. Well, I think when it comes to Dumbledore's reasons with, because the movie, especially the new trailer for the the second movies, is is heavily is heavily implying that Dumbledore still has feelings for Grindelwald, or is yeah. reflecting upon the feelings that he had. And I think what you were talking about, Katie, with what Dumbledore reveals to Harry at the end of the book that he couldn't face Grindelwald because of the revelation that who killed his sister. Both sides, like either whoever it was, if it's him, of course, there's that guilt that he's been living with that we discover. But if it's Grindelwald, it would be just as emotionally devastating to find out that the man you loved killed your sister. Right. Um, Yeah, that's true. And there's an additional element of guilt that because he let Grindelwald as far in as he did and was let him into his family life that... If he hadn't done that and put down his defenses, Ariana might not be dead. Um, so it comes back on him with the revelation of whoever it was. Hmm. Bummer. This chapter's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> he he has to face the fact that even indirectly, he's responsible for Ariana's death. And then he has to face the fact that he has been preparing Harry his whole life to march toward death. So... Poor Dumbledore mm-hmm. just keeps getting the the duty of being the death keeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, at least we know that Newt lives to a ripe old age, it seems. I know. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so even though he's using him for seemingly the same purposes so far, <laughs> at least he doesn't Well, die. and as, how, as far as how much 
that, you know, we know about that and the discontinuity errors and the possible retconning. She's trying, I think Rowling's trying to cover her bases with that because if you guys have read the latest edition of Fantastic Beasts that came out around the first movie, Newt has a new prologue where he essentially says, like, oh, the, the information on that is classified, so I can't talk about it. Uh, with the implication that, like, there will be a new edition of Fantastic Beasts every time these movies come out. And with each edition, <laughs> yeah. there will probably be a new introduction by Newt, and he'll just be like, oh, so here's what's been declassified. Um, so I'm expecting that event, like, she's trying to kind of hint that, oh, well, the Wizarding World knew some stuff, but they did not know yeah. everything. And Parker, I love what you brought up about the Veritas Serum. I want to hear this. Yeah, I, I think everybody already knows it's sketchy that Rita Skeeter is using Veritas Serum to question Bagshot. But then she also makes such a point to say, everybody knows that Bagshot is nuttier than Squirrel Poo. So how can you give someone Veritas Serum <laughs> who is nutty and expect them to still tell the truth? Is it like, oh, the truth is, is still buried underneath the layers of, of nuttiness? So it'll still come out, or is it just Rita Skeeter lying about how crazy Bagshot is, or lying about how much she got out of Bagshot? It's it's just all very shady. I think she's lying about Bagshot's mental state. I think she's telling the truth about Bagshot, but that the Veritaserum does bypass any issues. The Veritaserum, to me, is kind of similar to the pensive memories and Rowling's talked about the memories and that they're they are an accurate representation unless the person who has the memories like obviously messed with them and they're like it's an immediate giveaway if they did um yeah I'm pretty sure though that the Veritaserum works the same way you can't you can't necessarily force somebody to take Veritaserum because she's talked about that on Pottermore that you there are ways to stop it but if Bethilda was that old and batty, which I do think she was, I think that the Veritaserum just, like, would have been easy to slip into her drink. Um, yeah, I tend to together. agree with you, because I think she had two quotes from two different people that also said that Matilda was, you know, I'd lost her mind, basically. But it is really interesting. I'm thinking of, like, the medicinal use of Veritaserum on people with dementia or Alzheimer's. Like, you could ask them questions about their past and actually get the truth, even though if you ask them without the Veritaserum, they would have no idea what you're even talking about. Um, so I find that interesting. Is it something that they could be aware of, too, if you give them the Veritaserum and... and they might realize the truth of their situation where they couldn't yeah, before possibly. with the dementia. And I'm also just curious how the heck it's legal to use that for investigative journalism. I mean, <laughs> if you're like questioning a criminal suspect, that's one thing. But for Rita to just slip it in her tea and then just casually mention it in her book, like it's no big deal. <laughs> like, I think <laughs> that's the part of, partly I think that's why she mentioned, why she puts in the line that, but they'll as nutty as squirrel poo, because in a way she's saying to her readers, like, I know you want this, and this was the only way I was going to be able to get it, so deal with it. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like, like how we talked about Zachariah Smith in the last chapter discussion, uh, it's kind of funny here to be like, well, what do you, kind of, what, what are the things that are said now that we just, you know, excuse, you know, in the press and the news and in 
by things that our administration does here in the U.S. And I know with some, I'm sure the U.K. people could speak to that too. But, you know, just the things that we override when things become so crazy that, and when people are so hungry for what they think is the truth, mm-hmm. it kind of brings into, you know, investigative journalism, the rules of investigative journalism kind of go out the window. And Rita is very much posing it as, uh, you know, I did this for you, the reader. Yeah. So I think the assumption is that, well, then the readers will forgive her for this because, and it's almost Mm -hmm. in a weird way, better to just like oddly in some cases like this one, it works to just be grossly transparent about what you did. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> because she, Rita has built they up. they may not believe. Yeah. Rita's built up that cult of personality that she doesn't have to worry about if she says something like that because her listener or her readers want it so badly. Mm-hmm. Well, after they get through this chapter and Harry and Hermione are looking at each other like, oh my God, what did we just read? <laughs> WTF! Um, so poor Harry <laughs> just continues to go down this rabbit hole of horrible feelings. Um, it says, some inner certainty had crashed down inside him. It was exactly as he had felt after Ron left. He had trusted Dumbledore, believed him the embodiment of goodness and wisdom. All was ashes. How much more could he lose? Ron, Dumbledore, the Phoenix Wand, dot, dot, dot. And... We know that he loses his own life even at the end, but he doesn't lose everything. Thank goodness. Um, but at this point, he's feeling like he has lost everything and he has no idea what to do next. So he's just in the depths of despair and I feel so bad for him. It was funny. It's kind of a lesson, though, not to ask, how much more could I, how much more can I lose? <laughs> well, your life. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just thinking it was funny because I think, Parker, you were saying earlier when Hermione comes out of the tent, it was interesting to kind of think about what she might be thinking. And I can tell you what she's thinking now. She's thinking, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I should have this before I came outside. That's definitely what she was thinking. Like, yeah, that more, because he, uh, it's great. Like, I, that, that's another thing about how Rowling writes things. I love that she, she has this, she has a weird sense of, and it's not, it's not necessarily funny. It kind of is in this situation a little bit that Rowling has a good way, uh, way of writing almost writing out comedic timing. And it's great because Harry just turns to Hermione and she writes basically that Hermione was mortified and she slammed the book shut and took it away. And <laughs> it's like, it's great because it's just, it's a perfect example. Like without words, it's Hermione just being like, shit, shit, shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be done with this now. Okay. We're down in the dumps. This has made it worse. <laughs> and she immediately set it on fire. And that was, <laughs> Why do I always have to take a book with me everywhere I go? <laughs> I'm sure that Harry would not have been quite so devastated if he hadn't just felt betrayed by his best friend and lost his wand. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. the whole near-death experience is terrible. But he even says, oh, Dumbledore has betrayed me just like Ron betrayed me. And I wonder if that has just made this whole chapter, the reading the chapter of, of Skeeter's book, worse for him and if it could have been given to him at a more gentle time if he could have been disillusioned a little more gently well right i mean there's so much that um could be used to refute at least some of this you know 
it's not like Rita Skeeter is a trustworthy person. Harry knows that firsthand. Um, and, you know, Hermione tries to convince Harry that Harry knows that Dumbledore loved him, but Harry is too blinded by anger to acknowledge that right now. And I think maybe some of those things could have seeped in a little bit more successfully uh, into his frustration in this moment if those other things hadn't also just happened. Yeah. That's a lot Thanks, to Thanks, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, it, to be fair, it should be like, thanks, Horcrux. <laughs> Ron wouldn't have done that otherwise. Well, and it, this is... I, I would probably maybe say that if we were looking for the lowest point that our hero gets to, this is it. Because... Harry thinks he's hit a complete dead end at this point because you could, you might be able to argue that the the lowest point he gets to is when he realizes he has to die and there's nothing more he can do. But I think there's a comfort to there's a bizarre comfort to mm-hmm. Harry in knowing that mm-hmm. he his friends will come out of it okay and that the world will go on without him. Like he actually gets to that point. Well, and he also he knows like in that moment he has such a strong feeling of understanding that this was supposed to happen all along. Yes. A- and so there's it's such a serene moment when he realizes that he has to die, but here it's just fury. Mhm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, this is I think that for pin- looking to pinpoint the 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 lowest point because there's always a point in the hero's journey that they have to get to this point and i think we've i think we've pretty much reached it because harry think harry and hermione both think that they're at a dead end um they think they're out of clues and the information that they've gotten at this point to them is not a clue it's just more kind of salt in the wound for what they've already experienced so i think they're kind of like all right well <laughs> pack it up and go home we tried <laughs> and then also Hermione makes the comment that well they were young and Harry jumps on the opportunity to say I thought you'd say that said Harry (laughs) he did not want to let his anger spill out at her but it was hard to keep his voice steady I thought you'd say they were young they were the same age as we are now and here we are risking our lives to fight the dark arts and there he was in a huddle with his new best friend plotting their rise to power over the muggles does this sound familiar to anyone <sighs> harry says like the exact same thing about his dad mm. oh my like, gosh you're right the exact same thing good point hmm yeah, oh, yeah. The- Harry's just getting disillusioned left and right. <laughs> <laughs> All his heroes are horrible people. <laughs> well, that's what he's, and that's kind of what Beth is, I think, speaking to with that is that Harry does kind of c- continually have all of his hero f- figures just dismantled. Um, yep. And this is really, this is the last straw. Like, yeah. no more. And, yeah, so I think that's what is. What else is he going to think at this point? Um, because Harry still has, is still dealing with that issue of not. He's he's still learning how people grow and and change from their experiences. He's not finished with that understanding yet. I'm I'm really curious as to why Rowling felt the need to break down Dumbledore's character because. You know, usually it's enough to say, okay, I have to take away his parental figure. I have to take away his protection and his wise counsel so that he has to start making his own plans 
and moving forward and, and has to be the one to solve the problems of the story. But, you know, as a writer, you wouldn't necessarily have to also take down your mentor's character, even though it's it's a little temporary here, because I think Harry later doesn't think so badly of Dumbledore. But I think about in the Star Wars films when when uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is like, I will give my life so that, you know, you can move on with the fight. And it's not like later he finds out that Obi-Wan was this terrible person. So it's it's curious to me. I, <laughs> I keep thinking about, like, why, why take down so many of his heroes? I think because uh, Dumbledore is so sort of omniscient throughout these books that um, if Harry had been able to rely on Dumbledore the way that he has so far, he wouldn't have had to do the rest on his own. And I think he has to do the rest on his own. Um, I think he has to realize that Dumbledore didn't have all the answers. Um, and he, he didn't do all the right things. And it, he wasn't gonna bring him all the way to the finish line. Harry was gonna have to do it himself. And, and that adds a lot to Harry's character, I think. But, yeah, and I also think because Dumbledore is basically Joe, um, I think she n- needed to bring in the, the fallacy in order to make him a believable character because too much of that omniscient puppeteer stuff and suddenly he's not a believable human. Mm-hmm. It does it does a good job of making him a more interesting character. I, I keep mm-hmm. asking myself, could the plot have stayed exactly the same had we never found out that Dumbledore had been friends with Grindelwald? If that had never been part of the story, wouldn't it have still taken the same turn? Like, wouldn't the plot have still had the same exact direction? Is this just really good character building, but not necessarily uh, an effect on the direction the story takes? That's super interesting. And I think um, what I said before about... Harry's rant about being frustrated that Dumbledore left him with nothing, um, that that is a representation of the reader's frustration with Dumbledore as well at how little Dumbledore left Harry. Um, and I don't know what would have brought him to that frustration. The, the readers were sort of there. We've been there for a while, but Harry is now just getting there. And I don't know what else would have, would have brought Harry there. Um, I'm sure there could have been something else, but I don't know what that would have been. I think it's important in that Harry needs to learn because Dumbledore wants him to have a powerful weapon as an asset. Harry needs to under, have a fuller understanding of temptation and the dangers of that. And I think Dumbledore, Dumbledore doesn't, the the thing is, I don't think Dumbledore planned this story to be the thing that Harry found out. He was subtly teaching him about temptation throughout the years with things like the mirror of Erised. Um, Mm -hmm. He was prepping him for that already. And I don't think this was a part of his plan for him to find this out. Um, But I think having that information in the story strengthens that the themes of temptation and in the end does strengthen Harry's understanding of why the youth Dumbledore wanted Harry to have a proper internalization about how to deal with the hallows and mistakes that had been made with, with the hallows. Like he, I think part of it was he was also trying to help them understand that with the tales of Beetle the Bard, but 
that mm-hmm. I think wouldn't have been as strong. That wasn't as strong as, um, as the, as his personal piece. That's another thing that Dumbledore makes as a mistake because Harry relates better to personal experience than he does to stories Books. and anecdotes because he, yes, cause he, that's Hermione's job mm-hmm. and Hermione's there to translate for him. But Harry takes that stuff at face value compared to Hermione. Um, Harry needs personal one-on-one experiences that other people have gone through. Well, speaking of Hermione, Parker and Beth, you both had some great comments about how she reacts to Harry after this revelation. Shit, shit, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from that. (laughs) Yeah, I I love that uh, Harry's like, oh, you know, they were our age. They have no excuse. And I'm like, well, Harry, I don't know that you could have been quite the paragon that you are without Hermione. If you had a best friend like (laughs) Grindelwald, you know, who had played into some of your worst qualities, I don't know that you could have done so well. I mean, Harry does have kind of a pure character. There are so many times when he is tempted by evil and withstands it. But to have a friend who influences you by saying like, you know, don't, don't get too proud of yourself. Like, you know, I I love the moment in the movie when he's like, I am the chosen one. She kind of hits him on the head, but she also tells him (laughs) right in the first book, the most important things are friendship and bravery. And that's what she encourages him throughout the series. She encourages those qualities in him while Dumbledore didn't really stand a chance when he has somebody playing on his weaknesses at the weakest time of his life when his parents have died and he's on his own. Yeah. Yeah, And I think Harry has some pretty strong imposter syndrome. Like he says all the time, you know, I, I didn't do anything. It was just luck. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I really, am not a powerful wizard. Um, and he feels like all of the attention was thrust upon him and he doesn't deserve any of it. And, um, and so I think Hermione calming those tendencies for Harry is really important. The fact that she even notices that, because I don't think that Harry is very open about it. Um, but she notices and she, tries to help him through those moments by, you know, very kindly just reminding him that he he is skilled and he does deserve recognition and, you know, um, and that he is kind and cares about his friends. And, you know, she's always there to remind him that he's nothing like Voldemort whenever he's doubting it. And, um, yeah, what a good friend. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, I would love for you to read these next few quotes um, from Hermione and Harry. Oh, okay. So yeah, by this point, they're kind of in the middle of their... Harry's just, like, shouted at the top of his lungs. So Hermione's trying to... I think she's trying to kind of bring him down. Mm-hmm. And she says, He changed, Harry. He changed. It's as simple as that. Maybe he... He did believe these things when he was 17, but the whole of the rest of his life was devoted to fighting the dark arts. Dumbledore was the one who stopped Grindelwald, the one who always voted for muggle protection and muggle-born rights, who fought you-know-who from the start and who died trying to bring him down. Rita's book lay on the ground between them so that the face of Albus Dumbledore smiled dolefully at both. Harry, I'm sorry, but I think the real reason you're so angry is that Dumbledore never told you any of this himself. Maybe I am, Harry bellowed, and he flung his arms over his head, hardly knowing whether he was trying to hold in his anger 
or protect himself from the weight of his own disillusionment. Look what he asked from me, Hermione. Risk your life, Harry. And again. And again. And don't expect me to explain everything. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. And then it goes on. His voice cracked with the strain, and they stood looking at each other in the whiteness and the emptiness, and Harry felt they were as insignificant as insects beneath that wide sky. He loved you, Hermione whispered. I... I know he loved you. Harry dropped his arms. I don't know who he loved, Hermione, but it was never me. This isn't love. The mess he's left me in, he shared a damn sight more of what he was really thinking with Grindelwald than he ever shared with me. And that's all that's said. Oh. $15 on Patreon, private reading with Michael Harley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, claps. I, claps. Harry is so justified in being angry. <laughs> Yeah, he is. Yes, he is. Part of me wants to be like, don't worry, Harry. It's just that a writer can't have all the information to bulge at once. You have to encounter it slowly. So it's really, you know, but of course that's not, it's not like in the story of me. So it's fine, Harry. You're in a book. It's going to be fine. <laughs> just start singing the never ending story theme and fade away. No, that- there's, uh, it's, it, 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 I was thinking when reading this chapter about um, how, and I won't, tr- I, tr- I will try not to speak too much on her behalf, but Rosie talks a lot about on the show about how she has a lot of frustrations and problems with problems with Dumbledore as a character and that she really doesn't like him very much. And I think this chapter is a root for a lot of people who feel, a lot of readers who feel that way. Um, because it does bring to light in very much the same way that the prince's tale chapter brings to light, like the quote unquote positive traits about Snape and his hidden depths. This brings to light the very dark and negative aspects of Dumbledore in this chapter. And I think that it was great that you kind of why, how you were saying Parker about why does Rowling do this? And I think this is a, this is unusual, especially in a lot of young adult fiction that was out in the, at the time to take characters that are beloved and just tear them to pieces for readers and create these really sharp debates within the fandom about these characters. Uh, that doesn't, sometimes that doesn't even happen in the best adult fiction out there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, I think a great example, I think of a recent one was go set a watchman, which completely broke down Atticus Finch in ways that That's people why I were, won't read it. Yes. I know but, I can't read it. And I haven't read it either, but I, I, from what I understand, you know, and what I've heard, I know some of the stuff that is revealed about Atticus. And of course there's, there's certain differences there that we, that aren't worth getting into, of course, about, you know, the conditions which under which it was published and the permissions that Harper really gave and how old she was and whatnot. But the, the idea that, you know, you take this character that is just so universally beloved and you introduce character flaws later in the game or farther down the line that don't seem to necessarily line up with actions they had performed before. It does really make for just 
stuff, thoughts that leave, that linger long after you've read the book. Because we're still talking about Dumbledore and who he is as a person long after this is, you know, it's 2018 now. So we've got four more movies to find out more about him. (laughs) Well, and that's a good point. Are like, is the new information about Dumbledore going to enrich this sort of like questionable gray area of his personality, or is it going to some remove some of this richness? Mm. Yeah, if he gets redeemed too much, it takes away a little bit from the truth in this book that power corrupts and that Dumbledore had to learn that lesson the hard way. And if it kind of goes back and shows him like, Oh, you know, he wasn't quite as into the idea as, as Harry thought, then it's, it does it lessen the impact of the idea that you have to resist power. Right. And, and it goes back to Michael, what you said earlier was that sometimes it's the most powerful to leave things unsaid in a story. And, this is one of those areas where I get nervous that the more that gets said, the less nuanced it'll be. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, I, I am always a proponent of like, wait and see, wait and see. Um, I don't want to judge it before it happens, but I, I am a little bit concerned about that. Yeah. I'm continually living in that space with Harry Potter, with the Wizarding yeah. World franchise as a whole, because I think, Warner Brothers is aware that people are hungering for answers, that the fandom wants answers, and that some of us in the fandom are just like, no, that's fine, I'm good. But <laughs> the, but that you know the, that's what can generate continues to generate a revenue, and whether or not Rolling is contributing to these things, like of course the <laughs> spoiler listeners, if you've been living under a rock for the last few weeks, but Nagini is a was a person (laughs) and the, the, you know, just continuing to that, that continuing that role kind of more and more information from rolling, um, that fills in gaps that we didn't even see before. Um, yeah, it's, it can, it can get a little rocky. It's funny that you brought up star Wars Parker because star Wars is experiencing (laughs) a lot of the same things right now. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm of the same mindset, Beth, that I'm just like, mm, could we maybe leave a little bit to the imagination? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's have prequels to the prequels and explain yes. every moment. Well, yeah, now that we've got that rumor of like a, that potential video game that's coming out that's set in like the 1800s and right. <laughs> God. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it, Harry Potter! Just stop it! <laughs> that's why. That's why we really need more things like the puffs, where you're taking a character who didn't really have a bearing on the story, and then you can do whatever you want with them because it doesn't really yes. change yeah. much. Nice and nice and safe. Yes. Yeah, I think that was the initial draw to, for a lot of people to Newt because mm-hmm. he could be something totally unrelated, and that isn't what's transpiring (laughs) (laughs) i mean and and maybe all of our fears will be assuaged and you know she'll do a beautiful job as usual um but i also don't think that it's unfounded to be concerned about filling in some of these gaps yeah I'm kind of in two minds. Like part of me loves the connections to Potter and part of me is what you guys are saying. Like, okay, let's not 
tread on it too hard. Um, I think the challenge I'm... with that too comes with the crossover in media because Rowling is a much stronger. Sorry, Rowling, but you're a much stronger book writer than you are a screenwriter, <laughs> and. I, I, that's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that she's a much stronger book writer than she is a tweet writer. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other element. Isn't everyone? That's a whole realm <laughs> in its own self. But yeah, I think, and, and it's not entirely her fault, but it, the demands of script, of screenwriting are, comp- are very different and there's not, the whole vision is not hers, um, in the end. And because we don't, you know, I think we don't look to, when we talk about film, we don't look to the screenwriter as the visionary. We look to the director as the person who is considered the auteur of that material. And so, mm. because no matter how Rowling writes it, the way that Yates chooses to put it up on the screen, to some degree it has her approval, but Rowling is not a cinematographer. She's not a set designer. She's not a filmmaker. Um so there's liberties being taken in that respect. And, you know, again, with it was funny saying with Star Wars, too, and with Warner Brothers and the franchising of Potter, Star Wars went through an experience where once Disney acquired it, Disney was like, so this isn't canon anymore, like all of this, because we want to keep going with the story. So we're just going to erase it, hit the reset button on some stuff. And who's to say if Potter has the staying power, the lasting power, and it goes farther down the line and ownership changes hands. You never know. They might hit the reset button somewhere in this timeline and it might all not be relevant anyway. So, you know. I remember there was once a rumor a long time ago when the first movie was being made that Steven Spielberg had said he would like to make the movie, but he was going to combine books one, two, and three and it would be animated and Haley Joel Osment would be the voice of Harry Potter. <laughs> That was exactly his vision. No, 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 no. He also <laughs> wanted to reset it in the U.S. because he thought that would be more relatable. Yeah, American for Wizards. Yep. We love it. No. Yep. So. Oh, I just lost some respect for him. <laughs> well, that's a that's, that's the reason J.K. Rowling turned him down. <laughs> yes. Well, and then you think you. It, it, do you, she wanted her, her ideal director was Terry Gilliam. She wanted the guy from the Monty Python guy, which is wow. is a totally I all over that. Yeah, which which is a, in many ways a great pick, but like, isn't that that's that says a lot of interesting stuff about what she's seeing when she when she writes and reads Harry Potter. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's like, it's basically Monty Python with wizards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just uh, imagining them walking all around Hogwarts. The Ministry of Silly Walk style. Yes. <laughs> That's just how wizards walk, you know? She's never mentioned it, but it is. Clearly. Clearly. Well, there are a, a couple of other points I want to make regarding the upcoming movie. But before we do that, um, you, Beth and Parker had some great comments about Hermione reassuring Harry that he is loved by Dumbledore. And I wanted you guys to have a chance to explore that. I think they, like, the only thing I'd want to say about that section and why I wanted to read the narration is the, I love the picture that Rowling is painting with that, with putting mm-hmm. the book between Harry and Hermione. Um, it's, it's great that she visually splits them on their, on how they, on how they leave this chapter feeling about Dumbledore. Um, Cause it, creates additional tension to lead up into the next 
chapters because Hermione still has a bit of a... She's still hanging on to the Dumbledore belief that he might have some secret plans and Harry's given up completely on Dumbledore, I'd say. I wonder I wonder if she's holding on to that because she feels like that's when it, what's going to hold Harry together. And so she mm. kind of has to believe that Dumbledore had more of a plan because she's afraid that Harry's going to fall apart otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good she's also point. holding on to it because it's a book. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> not gonna let that we stay on the snow and get all wet. Can we all? I also have to say how amazing it is that how perfect this all fell into place when you consider that Rita Skeeter was not part of the original Goblet of Fire draft. Yeah. Like that's amazing that this that she she fell into just the right place because to build Rita up from books four to seven perfectly sets up this lack of assurance for Harry and for you, the reader about what Rita said and about how much of it was true, because we know to some degree by now that some of the things she says is true, but not all of it is, but we don't know. Right. She had to build Rita as a character that was credible enough Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't just completely disregard all of this as false and and Rita is also an extremely compelling writer. Like we see characters constantly throughout the books believing Rita, even though the trio was like, "Are you kidding me?" Like you know that she doesn't tell the truth, but people are still always falling for her. And now, you know, this is potentially an opportunity for for even these characters to fall for what she's saying. And and we can't trust that none of this is true. We also can't trust that everything is true. And yeah, that was really masterfully done on her part. Yeah, Harry has literally been a victim of her writing, and he's choosing to take pretty much everything she's saying as truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, isn't that... Well, and and some of that may be because he uh, suspected that mm. Voldemort... Or that Voldemort? Gosh, it's late at night, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that he maybe suspected that Dumbledore wasn't sharing everything with him, mm. that... um that there was so much more to Dumbledore than what he was allowing Harry to see. And having that just blow up in his face is more than he can handle. Yep, that's the backfire part of Dumbledore's plan of not getting close to Harry and not being personal with him, is that somebody else spilled the information before he did. Yeah. Weird that he didn't see that coming. Like, did he just think that oh, no one's going to find out about the mistakes of my past? Or was it just too hard for him to, to be like, hey, just in case someone else tells you about this later, I'm going to tell you a few things from my <laughs> point of view. <laughs> but I could see how t- he would just be too... Sh- I mean, he's really ashamed of all of us. So it may have just been too hard for him. But I think strategically, he it would have been smart of him to just mention it a little bit before he died. As Michael said previously, like he never thought that this would ever come out, that you know there was no way that anyone would find out about it. Um, it was so buried far into his past and he never told anybody about it. Like, you know, the only person that knew was Bethilda Bagshot and, you know, she would never have intentionally betrayed Dumbledore. So the fact that this was able to surface is kind of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's probably betting on it not ever coming out. Right. I think Dumbledore has a bit of... A problem with, and we've seen that, we see it in Goblet of Fire, but he has a bit of a problem with underestimating Rita. 
Um, yes. Because he doesn't take her seriously, and he knows that what she writes isn't true. But he, he not only is maybe a problem with underestimating Rita, but also under mis- uh, underestimating the public, um, which I think he sees a little bit of what happens with that in Order of the Phoenix. But Dumbledore has Dumbledore has ways to rise above that. And he's equipped with that. As, and he, maybe, you know, maybe he didn't think about how Harry is not, or maybe he placed too much faith that Harry would be able to overcome that. Or maybe he, that was another piece that he was counting on that Hermione would be able to bring him to his senses. But Dumbledore also says in that, in that, in, in to Harry at one point that when he makes mistakes, they, because he, his successes are, are greater than most men, so are his mistakes. Um, and I think this is a case of that where Dumbledore couldn't have planned... He planned for a lot, but he could not have planned for every single thing. I'm going to start using that excuse for myself. <laughs> if I do something wrong, I'm like, well, my successes are so great. But of course my failures are also great. <laughs> Maybe not true, but it sounds nice. <laughs> so it's just occurring to me, um, as we're talking about like how Dumbledore didn't see this coming... Grindelwald was still alive, right? Like, as Rita was writing this book, Grindelwald was still alive. Yep, he's yeah. in prison in Nurmengard. Right, so why didn't she try to interview him for this? Mm. Maybe did she, she did. Did she just think that he wouldn't tell the truth? She tried to, and the guards were just too powerful for her to get past. <laughs> well, then she should have transfigured in, uh, into a beetle. As a beetle. Right. Crawled through the cell doors. <laughs> Actually, yeah, she probably could have done that. She probably could and tried. They have have anti-beetle charms. (laughs) (laughs) Keep the louse out of the prison. More secure than Hogwarts. (laughs) I think. um, I think it's pretty clear that Grindelwald is not the same person when he died than he was, you know, during the the height of his power. Um, we don't know how much he changed, but do you guys think that if he wasn't like hidden away in prison, that he would have spoken up for Dumbledore during this? Mm. I'm not so sure. I mean, well, like after this came out, maybe, but if, if she had just come to him wanting the story, I don't think he would have divulged it. But yeah, after she got it from Batilda, he, yeah, maybe he would have wanted to respond and paint Dumbledore in a better light because like you said we can see that he is a different person by the time he dies because he does not help Voldemort um he shows regret at the end of his life so I think yeah I'm not I can't really imagine what he would have said it probably would have been kind of short and sweet but just you know Dumbledore was a an infinitely better man than I ever was Something like that. And I went on to do all this completely on my own. He changed his mind and did not agree with my ideals, my methods, any of this. Maybe he did say that to Skeeter and she was like, that doesn't fit my book. I need something. (laughs) Oh, wow. That would be cool. Well, and we didn't, we don't get to read the whole book. So yeah, that's true. true. Oh, the end was like actually it turns out Dumbledore was a great guy. Uh, everything I've written up to now, <laughs> oh, Harry, if only you could finish a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was mad we didn't get to read the chapter about the battle. Like, Gosh darn it! But yeah. that's what these movies are for, I suppose. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of the movies, I figured we could wrap this up real quick because in the original episode of Alohomora, where you guys uh, discussed this chapter, the only thing you had to go on as far as Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship being um, one-sided or not was the old quote from Joe from 2008, where she says, um, regarding Grindelwald, I think he was a user and a narcissist, and I think someone like that would use it, would use the infatuation. I don't think that he would reciprocate in that way, although he would be as dazzled by Dumbledore as Dumbledore was by him, because he would see in Dumbledore, my God, I never knew there was someone as brilliant as me, as talented as me, as powerful as me. Together we are unstoppable. So I think he would take anything from Dumbledore to have him on his side. Um, so using just that quote, it would seem it was not reciprocated on Grindelwald's side. It was all Dumbledore, and Grindelwald was just using that against Dumbledore. But in quotes that have come out this year about what's to come in the upcoming movies, um, either J.K. Rowling has changed her mind, or you know the times have changed, obviously, since you know, 10 years ago. Um, Maybe that has helped her change her mind. Or maybe the people working on the movie are just like, we are going to change this. I'm sorry whether you agree with us or not. Um, well, and that's just what I was it, speaking to you about. Because a lot of these quotes that are infamous now come from David Yates. And there, there's your piece with auteur theory that Rowling is no longer the only auteur, if not the the auteur anymore with this Yeah, story. although I think... David Yates is not good at no, communicating he's not. what he <laughs> intends. No, um, he's very bad at it. <laughs> That's why we yeah. have several, well, two quotes from him and one from Johnny Depp that I think shed some light on it. But again, we won't know until we actually see the films. Yeah, Johnny Depp must have known we were doing this episode because he yeah. kind of just said this. Yeah. <laughs> so the first quote we got from David Yates in January of this year um, he says, not explicitly, Yates replied when asked if the film makes it clear that Dumbledore is gay. But I think all the fans are aware of that. He had a very intense relationships, relationship with Grindelwald when, when they were young men. They fell in love with each other's ideas and ideology and each other. Which implies that it was two-sided. And then recently in an Empire Magazine interview, David Yates said... Uh, Yates told Empire Magazine that he was misunderstood when he spoke about Dumbledore's sexuality. In that earlier interview, I didn't say Dumbledore is not gay. He is. This part of this huge narrative that Joe is creating doesn't focus on his sexuality, but we're not airbrushing or hiding it. The story of the romantic relationship isn't there in this particular movie, but it's clear in what you see that he is gay. A couple of scenes we shot are very sensual moments of him and the young Grindelwald. So again, that seems to lend credence to it being two-sided. I don't um, know. I feel like you could read it either way. I feel like y you could read it that, um, you know, they, they fell in love with each other's ideas and ideology and each other. And I think, I think you could read that in the lens of Joe's comment, um, that you read previously about him, him being dazzled by Dumbledore um, and, you know, sort of falling into a more intense relationship, um, even though I, I don't think that they felt the same way about each other. 
Um, and then the second quote where he says a couple of scenes we shot are very sensual moments of him and the young Grindelwald. Again, I don't think that those, you know, have to be explicitly romantic. I think, you know, depending on how they're portrayed, I think they could be very, you know, romantic from one side and, you know, very, um, very different from Grindelwald's side. I don't, I don't quite know, but I think there are okay. definitely ways to to play that. Well, I would agree with you. And then we can get the thing from Johnny Depp that <laughs> talks about it from Grindelwald's side. <laughs> so first question, what does Grindelwald think of Dumbledore at this point? Johnny says, I think he's just waiting. He's looking forward to their inevitable showdown. I think there's probably a lot of residue left over from days gone by. They quite bonded, you know. When you loved someone and cared for someone, and it arrives into a combative arena, as it has with Dumbledore and Grindelwald, it's very dangerous when it becomes personal. Second question. There's been lots of focus on Dumbledore's sexuality and how much should be in the film, but very little speculating about Grindelwald. What's your take on your character's sexuality and how much of that is apparent in the portrayal? He says, I think it should be left up to the audience to feel it first, and when the time comes... It makes the situation with Dumbledore all the more intense. I think there's a jealousy with Scamander. He sees Scamander as Dumbledore's protege, his boy in a way. That in itself is enough for Grindelwald to want to take Scamander down in a way that is ferocious and eternal. So why would he be jealous if right. he's he never triangle now? It's very. Sh- it, <sighs> is that what he's implying? <laughs> what was that? Is he is Depp implying that it's turned into a bit of a love triangle? With Scamander, he says he's jealous of Scamander, but yeah, I don't think he really thinks just of that, his attention that Dumbledore and Scamander have a relationship. But he sees that Newt is important to Dumbledore, um, that they have some kind of close friendship, and that's enough to make him jealous, whether he thinks well, it's I, romantic or not. I agree, and I think that's the love that he's referring to. I don't think it's a romantic love from Grindelwald's part, but I do think, I do think he did love Dumbledore. I think you know. In in a lot of the ways that people love and care about each other non-romantically. Um, and I think that that makes it all the more crushing that he used that to manipulate Dumbledore. Like, that's, like, the fact that he was able to turn that around into something sinister is really disturbing. What do you think, Michael? I've always gotten the sense that Grindelwald is a sociopath yeah, with the way that he is described and that I think with his time in Nuremberg, the way I read based just on the book, the way I read it is that Grindelwald was just completely driven by power and obsession and greed and, and his goal of dominance over muggles and taking power. But I think during his time in Nurmengard and from what Harry says to Dumbledore, there's an implication that he, by being in a solitary, by being basically in what's implied to be solitary confinement, he is able to kind of break through to realize that Dumbledore was a good person and that he was fortunate to have had a, to have known him and had a relationship with him, whatever the level of that relationship was. I also don't think, you know, this is interesting because I, 
as as a gay man myself and talking to other LGBTQIA Potter fans, there's kind of a question of, you know, how much do we, like, there's, it's kind of been put on us of, like, you've been forcing this into the movie. And it's like, no, we actually haven't. Like, we're, yeah, no. we're interested in making sure that it's acknowledged that Dumbledore has those feelings. But, like, you know, the the way that it went with, with Yates's first quote, what I thought was so wildly badly explained on his part was he says it's not explicit. And people really ran with the word explicit. He probably shouldn't have used that word. Um, yeah. Because people were just like, you know, people were saying like, we don't want to see Dumbledore and Grindelwald being all gay all over the place. And I'm just like, okay, well, I can't even start to break down all the things that are wrong with that statement. <laughs> but like on top of that, Yates was trying to say that, I think Yates was trying to say in layman's terms that the film language will speak for it rather than the dialogue. And I think everybody mm-hmm. got that in that scene in the trailer where Dumbledore is looking to the mirror of Erised and he sees Grindelwald. Um, yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's a visual film cue that is not conveyed with dialogue. And that's why film tells a story through visuals and writing tells a story with words. And there's, there's so many differences um, with your storytelling methods. Um, so Yates misspoke. And I thought that's what he meant when he misspoke. But it was badly done on his part because then it did get in it did start this discussion of how much do we want to see of Dumbledore and Grindelwald being sexual and I think Rowling just clearly implied with her statement about what when she revealed Dumbledore's sexuality that Dumbledore and I would I would call Dumbledore and Grindelwald if anything they are I would call them sapiosexuals which is that they are both attracted to intellect um, mm-hmm. and they're not, I don't think I wouldn't necessarily like, uh, while there may be a physical aspect to that for the two of them, I don't think it probably got that far. Um, and it seems to me from Rowling's quotes that Grindelwald pushed, if there ever was an opportunity that Dumbledore saw Grindelwald probably pushed back on that. But Dumbledore being young and naive probably just let his feelings get in the way and, probably held out hope that there might be something when there wasn't anything there on Grindelwald's side. Um, I don't know. I I don't feel like the movies need to do much more than just show that Dumbledore has that attachment and that Grindelwald knew enough to take advantage of it. Um, Right. I don't need to know if Grindelwald reciprocated or not. Honestly, like I would be interested to find out, but I don't need that. I do need for them to not airbrush or hide the fact that Dumbledore is gay. So I'm glad that he said they're not doing that, that it should be obvious that he is. Um, and I think that's all um, mo- the majority of people are asking for yes. or have been asking and that, for. That, and that's challenging to build in when the issue is that Rowling built a character in Dumbledore who doesn't talk about that stuff. Like, it's not that I don't think Dumbledore is has any qualms about being a homosexual because the wizarding world, according to Rowling, doesn't really care. Um, I think it's more the fact that Dumbledore doesn't like telling people about his personal life. So especially I, when it involved Gellert Grindelwald. Yes. <laughs> so I can't imagine, like it is going to be a little weird to me if he were to sit down because it, it's, it seems clear in the trailer that Newt's trying to needle him about why he can't 
why Dumbledore can't just do it. And Dumbledore's just like, I can't move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. And like, it would be weird if he was just like, so let me tell you about a golden summer. (laughs) (laughs) I was 16 and this beautiful boy (laughs) walked into town and it's like, no, that's not going to happen. And if it does, it's going to be weird. (laughs) I think it'll just be flashbacks and mirror scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope so. I think I've even seen quotes saying that we're not going to get it all in the second movie either. We're going to get glimpses of it, but there's still more to come. Um, But I was just, I wanted to include that just because in the last episode on this chapter, we had less to go on. We only had that first quote from 2008. And now we have more to go on, and we're really interested in seeing what actually is shown and what we find out through these movies. I I think people... Yeah, I think we... Oh, go ahead, Parker. We need to understand the emotional context of their final confrontation. So whatever it takes to understand how they feel when they go into finally mm-hmm. facing each other is what we need. That's a yeah. great, that's a great mm-hmm. way to put it, because I think that's, there's a good, there's, a, it's important to have a distinction between that and what I think might be a fan service desire for Dumbledore to get some kind of happy or some kind of positive resolution with his relationship with Grindelwald. I think the fans are looking for a resolution with that, but it doesn't work with oh, Dumbledore's no. story to have a resolution. Um, no, that's a whole huge, that's a massive part of his character is that there was no resolution. Yes, you can't Or have if it. there ever was any, it was when he defeats him, maybe or maybe not, he finds out at that point who killed Ariana. We don't even know if he ever found out for sure. God, he definitely um, isn't supposed to find out. <laughs> I think that's why it's important to have Newt play a big role in the movie because if the movie is leading to this really fraught confrontation between Dumbledore and Grindelwald and it can only end with you know, this is sad. I had to defeat my former friend and face the death of my sister yet again. There needs to be something, but like, and yet, like my friendship with Newt Scamander and the rest of the wizarding community has, you know, been boosted by the fact that we had to work together and the whole theme of like friendship conquers the day. Like there just is in Harry Potter. You have to have some kind of positive outcome after all of this. I guess I'm just hoping that the movie doesn't have like a super depressing ending. Like it's, there's got to be something that we get at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that, yeah. that ties in, I think too, to what we discussed near the top of the episode about what is going to set Grindelwald apart as a character from Voldemort because, yeah. and what is the story that Rowling is trying to tell us and what values is she trying to instill in this story that set it apart from Potter? How is this not a repeat of Potter basically? And I think it's that good people fall into mm. the traps of Grindelwald's um, power. Like, and, yeah. It's not just evil people that are following him um, because he makes his view of the world so appealing. Um, and that's way scarier. Mm-hmm. Like, evil is evil and really identifiable. And when good people start uh, making questionable decisions, that's when it's 
really frightening. And that's definitely something that the marketing has been pushing about. You know, their yes. tagline is who will change the future. And all of the imagery right. is splitting, is in different, like constantly in each poster, they're doing it I know, it they keep changing it. But they're splitting right, the group. The questions about Theseus and Lita and Queenie even, like, mm-hmm. yeah, we we have no way of knowing at this point how it's going to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Well, listeners, head on over to Speak Beastie for more theorizing. <laughs> yes, our friends the over there. The discussion continues over there. To, more to say. I'll probably be yes. over there at some point talking about that, too. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Parker, for being on this episode. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I could go on for a few more hours, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could quiz each you other. We could yeah, trivia fun. questions. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what everyone wants? <laughs> I think you can use that uh, Willie Wittershins one. That was good. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Well, yes, Parker, you were you were a great guest. It's always fun to have uh, a writer on the show to yeah take apart. I, I and espe- I especially you know loved your questions about things like why why does Rowling break down Dumbledore in that way? It's great to hear that from the perspective of a writer of of how Rowling approached things and. You know, how that, how that, how other writers afterwards have, have been inspired by her work or, you know. Yeah, I've definitely been very inspired by her work. And I, and I like talking about both aspects. Like, let's look at it as if these things are a real world and actually happen. And what were the motivations then? And then looking at it from the other side, which is why would the writer do this? You know, you can never know for sure, but just conjecturing is so interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And listeners, I can also speak, uh, very positively to Parker's writing because I actually long before I knew she was ever going to be on an episode of Lovamora, I read uh, her uh, previous book where futures end, uh, which was excellent teen fiction and you should definitely pick it up. Maybe you'll have as many questions as I do. Y'all know that I'm constantly <laughs> comparing, talking about cloud Atlas on the show. If you want the teen version of cloud Atlas, go read where futures yeah, end. It is- Referred to as the Teen Cloud Atlas. I think it says it on the cover somewhere. It's like, this is mm-hmm. the Teen Cloud Atlas. Just because I love Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Thank you. Well, well you, you were so looking forward to uh, a cheerful end to Fantastic Beasts, and you don't give your readers that so much, <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, I think with the title, like, Where Futures End, you have to expect it not to have quite a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> and parker as a reminder for our listeners where can they find you online um so you can find me on my website at parkerpvhouse.com and also twitter and instagram at parker pv p-e-e-v-y and i did go to her website listeners there is a special little icon there just for you and there's a little yes play my puzzle i would love that <laughs> that was so fun uh, yeah I'm, I'm still kind of playing with the puzzle actually i keep clicking back and forth to it (laughs) during the episode um and listeners i will solve this (laughs) and listeners uh if you're interested in our next uh episode there our next topic will be the review of harry potter and the cursed child because we've all seen it now yay so and there's a lot to say (laughs) I, I'm I'm still fresh. I'm still I'm still forming my <laughs> thoughts and opinions. I only saw it like three days ago, so yeah, Beth is it's like fresh out of the oven for her. 
So yeah, <laughs> it takes a while. It does. It does. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so listeners, you get to hear our thoughts on that all together. We're gonna, we're gonna, this will be the first time we'll all be, uh, together talking about it. Um, and kind of breaking it down from what we saw now that we've actually all finally seen it on stage. So be ready. And if you would like to be on the show, please visit our website, alohomorapodcast.com, and choose Be On The Show. Follow the instructions and send us your audition. You can also visit the Topic Submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about, whether it be a topic or a chapter. Uh, to be on the show, you just need a computer, a microphone, and a pair of headphones. And if you are chosen to be a guest host, we will walk you through the rest. And I think uh, Parker can attest that when there are minor technical difficulties, it's no worries, and we figure it all out together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Group effort. Y'all are geniuses. <laughs> Uh, so if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter at MN on Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore. Our website is AlohomoraPodcast.com. Our YouTube is YouTube.com slash MN, And our email, as always, is AlohomoraPodcast at gmail.com. And just one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohomora. Thanks again to David Butt, Davy B. Jones, 999, for sponsoring this episode. We so appreciate that you've stuck with the show this long, David, and we really thank you for your support. It's because of listeners like David that we are able to continue doing episodes like these, not only chapter discussions, but also topic discussions as well. And again, you can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month, and be sure to check out our higher tiers for access to Dumbledore's Office episode sponsors, Chapter readings, all kinds of cool stuff, uh, and of course, exclusive content, including reviews of Cursed Child that you can get early access to to find out our thoughts before the big episode. But I cannot wait to listen. <laughs> I, ha- I haven't heard what you think yet, so I know I'm looking forward to I'm it. I'm keeping it. <laughs> it's on my list of things to do tomorrow. Is I- <laughs> watch Michael's video. I'm so excited. I also never watched your video, Katie, because I wanted to go in, like, totally with my own opinions. Um, okay. So I have both of them to well, watch. Well, you have and an I... hour and a half of videos <laughs> to watch. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but for now, listeners, we just finished reading The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, and we have a lot to go process. So we will see you on the next episode of Lohomora. I'm Michael. I'm Beth. And I'm Katie. Thank you for listening to episode 257 of Aloha Open the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. And then shut it quickly like Hermione did. Yes. <laughs> Put it away. <laughs> shut it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> just like the idea of Hermione just swearing uncontrollably. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I still love that. Have you ever seen that? The BuzzFeed did that video with like where was the whole series but summarized through Hermione's perspective. 
And yes, and they had the titles for each book. Yes. But it was like Hermione's titles. Yes, I loved it. And my favorite bit was the, when whenever Hermione needs to solve a problem, the narrative goes, she set that bitch on fire. <laughs> 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 